If you have a Bible this morning, I ask you to grab that, and we'll be in Isaiah starting in chapter 36. If you do not have a Bible, there is a pew Bible in front of you, and we'll be in a lot of text this morning, and so a lot of it will not be on the screen, so I invite you to take the copy of God's Word. If you're using a pew Bible, it's around page 597 is where we'll start. Isaiah chapter 36. But have you ever wondered why any of the stories are in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament? Like a teenager taking a giant on with a slingshot and a rock. Or a host of fiery angel riding horses, defending a prophet at night. A housewife killing an enemy general with a tent peg. A city destroyed by people walking around it. A man fleeing God only to be eaten by a large fish. Or as we'll see today, a large portion of the most fearsome army on the planet is slain miraculously in the middle of the night. Why are these stories in our Bible? We started the summer of hope in Romans chapter 15 that answers that question. And our theme verse for the first sermon is this in Romans 15 verse 4. It says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So the two lessons here that we are instructed from the Old Testament, that we might have hope so we may endure and be encouraged. And so everything in the Old Testament, as strange and as detached as it may be, teaches us something that we can have hope in our day and our time. Every story in the Old Testament does not sit alone, and every story in the Old Testament is important because in those small stories, God is connecting these stories together to tell one story, the grand coming of Christ. Whatever happens in the Old Testament is for a purpose that looks forward to Jesus. And so if every small story is important, what happens if a story is recorded three times? In Isaiah, in 2 Kings, and in 2 Chronicles, we come across a story that stands out. King Hezekiah stands in front of the most powerful army on the planet, denies them, and trusts in God. So what is the Lord teaching us through this story? It will teach us that when we come into our lives, we will have challenges to our hope, to our faith. The people of God will face hard times. And this story will illustrate God's salvation. And more importantly, it will illustrate God's salvation and how our hope grows in a soil of faith. So let's look at the background here. And so we're coming in and jumping in the middle of Isaiah, so it kind of seems out of place. And it's easy to get lost in the storyline of Scripture sometimes, especially in the Old Testament. In fact, it's probably easy to get mixed up in our own lives. Like, think back just a few years ago. Did that happen in 2007? 2008? I was reading um, some current events uh, this week, and it was talking about current events that happened 12 years ago. And I was thinking, that happened like three years ago, right? And then I was reading something else, and I was like, no, that was 1995. And so in our lives, it's easy to get kind of mixed up in the storyline. So let's kind of paint this broad picture here in the Old Testament, because it's easy to forget that the Old Testament didn't happen over the course of a few weeks or a few months or even a few years. It happens over the course of 2,000 years. So let's frame our story here with this timeline. Trevor, if you got that next slide on the timeline. And so if you're looking here, David, who we all know, comes to become king in about 1010 B.C. And so he reigns for about 40 years, and his son Solomon takes over for 40 years. Then his grandson Rehoboam screws it up, 
and the kingdom of Israel is split into two. So that happens at about 930 B.C. So almost 80 years are taking place there. And the kingdom splits from the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. And they last for a couple hundred years until Israel is taken over by the nation of Assyria and is exiled. The ten tribes of Israel disappear. Judah and Benjamin last for another hundred years or so, and they are also taken over by Babylon, and they're exiled. And so at this point in history, everything looks great at David, and then over the course of a hundred years, everything starts to slide downward. And all of that happens, this downward slide, this split, this civil war, and these exiles happen because of one thing, idolatry. The writer of 2 Kings puts it this way. He says, all this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, and they feared other gods. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Judah also did not keep the command of the Lord their God, but walked in the custom that Israel and the other nations had introduced. And so because the people of God were not able to stay in their land, to stay as a people, to flourish and thrive, is because they abandoned God. And then according to God's covenant, he abandoned them. And so what we're looking at is a bleak and hopeless situation. These were the people of God who were supposed to be his representatives on the planet. But now they have no home. They have no temple. They have no place to worship or call their own. And so if you're a resident in the 700s in Judah or in Israel, everything is dark. Everything is lost. It's hopeless. And that's where our story takes place today. And so on the next slide, you see where our events in chapters 36, 37, and 38 of Isaiah come into play. We know that they occurred in 701 B.C. because there are extra-biblical records of this actually happening. And we'll look at a, a, some evidence of that in just a minute. But so we have, in the early 700s, the people of Israel are exiled. They're gone. Everything in Judah looks dark. It's hopeless. Until a small star begins to dawn. Because God sends the people of Israel a new king, a baby, who will take the throne. And his name is Hezekiah. He takes the throne somewhere in the 720s, and he accomplishes major spiritual, moral, political reform in the nation. First and foremost, he takes all the idols, the shrines, the altars, the places of worship, and destroys them. He restores the temple of God. He reinstitutes the Passover. He reorganizes the priests. He makes major changes to the religious and social life of the people of God. And things start to turn around. It looks like we're experiencing a revival. He's making Judah great again, if you will. Hope is being restored to the people of God. It looks like everything is gone Everything is hopeless. Everything is desperate until Hezekiah starts to make these changes because he turns the people away from idolatry and back to the one true and living God. So everything is looking up. A fresh wind of life is blowing through the country. God is working in his people. God is turning their hearts and their lives back. Everything is looking up. Hope is rising. Confidence is returning. But the Assyrian army, the greatest empire on the planet at that time, their dreaded enemy is lurking just over the horizon, posing a challenge to their hope and their faith. And so our first point today 
tells us this, that our hope is often challenged by the struggles of life. Hope is often challenged by the struggles of life. So if you're living in this time, you've gone from the worst to the worst, and things are getting better, and we've hit a peak. Everything is going smoothly. Everything is turning around. But aren't often our challenges unexpected? Isn't this happens with us where everything's going well, then suddenly, bam, out of nowhere, we're hit with some struggle or hardship. Like the car in the next lane suddenly swerves into yours. You go to the doctor and a cancer diagnosis suddenly appears on the scan. You show up to work one day and by the end of the day, you're taking all your stuff home in a cardboard box. Or you come downstairs one morning and your teenager tells you, I'm an atheist now. You walk to the mailbox to discover dozens of unpaid bills. These issues, some might have been lurking in the background the whole time, have an opportunity to rise up and smack us in the face. They put a challenge to our hope, our hope in the future. What's going to happen? And our hope in God is even shaken. Can he be trusted? So we may trust God. Yeah, I trust God for my eternal future, but does he care about my tomorrow? I may be able to trust him with my eternity, but can I trust him with my summer, with my kids, with that thing with my car? And that's exactly what this episode in Hezekiah's life teaches us. As challenges confront us, the question will arise, who do you trust? Because we're all trusting in something or someone to carry us through this life and into the next. The question given to Hezekiah and to the people of God in Jerusalem in 700 BC is the same question posed to you and I today. What are you hoping for? So let's turn our eyes to the text. And so Hezekiah will face two challenges in our chapters. First, we see this in Isaiah chapter 36, verses 1 and 2. In the 14th year of Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. So we have this guy, the Rabshakeh, who's a military general. He's the leader of the Assyrian army. And Assyria had become the most powerful and fearful empire on the planet. And they were ruthless, vicious, wicked. They'd taken over most of the Middle East and some of Asia Minor. They had been harassing Judah and Israel and Palestine for 50 years. Waves of attack had come upon Israel, Judah, and their neighbors. But then a brief pause happens, and Judah suddenly begins to, to come back until Assyria shows back up again. And so we know from the king Sennacherib's own words what happened. So check out his words that he actually wrote, and you can find inscribed in the British Museum today. He says this. He says, As for Hezekiah the Judean, he did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege to 46 of his strong fortified cities and countless villages in their vicinity and conquered them. I brought out 200,150 people, young and old, male and female, horses, mules, donkeys, camels, big and small cattle beyond counting, and considered them booty. Himself, that's Hezekiah, I shut up as a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence like a bird in a cage. His towns I plundered, I took away his country, I added tribute and gifts and imposed there upon them. The terror-inspiring splendor of my lordship had overwhelmed Hezekiah himself. I love when history strengthens our faith in the Bible. This is a, a, uh, a relief, a, a chiseling that they found from 
Sennacherib, from himself that attributes to the veracity of our Bible. These things happened in history. This occurred. God works. And so I love his pride here and his detail. Exactly 200,150 people. Cattle, big and small. And my favorite, I think every politician should lead with this, the terror-inspiring splendor of my lordship overwhelmed him. This is terrifying. There's no real hope for Judah or for Hezekiah. They are a little city in the midst of some backwater province that the greatest army on the planet, more than a million strong, has come against them to destroy them. Look at that again. I love it. It says, with a great army. And not only that, not only the greatest army on the planet is knocking at their door, Hezekiah has fallen sick. If you look over a couple chapters in Isaiah chapter 38, verse 1, it says this, In those days, <clears throat> around the same time, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. So a few years before the greatest army on the planet comes knocking, the king has fallen sick, he's on his deathbed, he will die. Isaiah comes and offers some pretty hopeless words. If I'm Isaiah's assistant, I say, Isaiah, you need to work on your bedside manner. You can't just go into your patient's room and say, hey, you're going to die, get ready. Oh yeah, and more importantly, God said so. So not only is Hezekiah facing Assyria outside the walls, he's failing a disease that's going to take his very life at the same time. This is a pretty rough, would you rather? You've played that game, right? Which is worse, an invading army? or infectious disease? I don't know. Well, Hezekiah doesn't get a choice. He's got to face them both. And these types of circumstances are incredibly challenging to hope. Hezekiah doesn't have more than a few days to live. And everything is going well. Hezekiah will say, God, didn't I do all these things for you? Weren't you coming back to revive the nation? I'm not ready to die yet. The people are attacked by illness and invasion and everything is going well. Hezekiah is trying to follow the Lord. While far from perfect, it appears things were looking up for his people. This goes to show us that our strict obedience, and when we follow the Lord, does not inoculate us from trials and trouble. You can trust the Lord, follow him, and while your hope is rising, the Assyrians and disease will still come for you. And it's good for us to know that. Challenges are often unexpected. But often... Challenges are often unsettling. So we come <clears throat> and we hear the words of the Rabshika. So this won't be on the screen, so turn your eyes to the text. We're going to pick up the story in verse 4. And the Rabshika, the military general, said to them, as the people of Jerusalem, he says, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the great king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of a man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who all will trust in him. But if you say to me, We trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants? 
when you trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, As my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to all the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given to the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat his own vine, and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink water of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, of the go- Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. These are terrifying, unsettling words. So the, the Rabshikah, this military general, comes up and starts to unsettle their hope for their peace, for their security, and their trust in Yahweh. And so if we look back over this, look what he does. In verses 5 and 6, he starts to dismantle their current strategies. They had been trying to make an alliance with Egypt. They had been talking with empty words. He starts to disparage their trust in God in verse 7. Well, God can't save you. He points out in verses 9 and 10 their weaknesses. Hey, you don't have enough people to put any riders on any horses that we may give you. They have no power in themselves. Verse 10, he says, hey, God's actually on my side. He's abandoned you and come to me. In verse 12, he says, he gives them, you know, kind of the worst case scenario. He catastrophizes everything. And if you don't think the Bible is real and visceral, read verse 12 again. Then he points out in verses 18 and 19 the inevitability was to come. It's hopeless. Give up and come over to me. This is a form of psychological warfare. So this attack, this psychological warfare, comes often from the outside in, but sometimes it's in our own heads. When challenges stand out of our lives, it's easy for our faith and our hope to be unsettled, to be anxious, to be frustrated. And two key words appear in this section. I don't know if you caught them. But over and over again, seven times each, the words trust and the words deliver appear. So first the word trust. And whether intentional or not on the Rabshika's part, he's revealing to us the key issue. When he says that you trust in the Lord, don't trust in Hezekiah, what he's saying here is is this image of throwing oneself down in front of, on the face, to lie extended upon the ground. It's a deep and utter dependence, a trust. Then our second word here, he says, deliver. The image here is to snatch away, to extract, to draw away from danger. Putting these two terms together shows us what's at stake. Danger and trouble will be at your doorstep. Trouble and sickness will infect your bones. Confusion and dread will fill your mind. 
Escape and rescue may seem hopeless. So who will you depend on to carry you to safety? The Assyrian king and his spokesman are asking the key question for our lives in verse 4. On what do you rest your trust? In fact, it's the center of everything Isaiah has been saying for 39 chapters. Will you trust the Lord or will you trust other saviors? Who will you hope in? And isn't that the challenge we face today? Will you continue to trust Jesus for your everything? And not just eternal life, but your everyday life? Or you go with something else or someone else? So when difficult and unexpected circumstances arrive that make us uncomfortable, anxious, fearful, and cause us often to lose hope. And they cause us to ask the question, does God really care about me? Is he able to provide? Is he going to save us? Can he be trusted? Should I look for something else? So challenges are unexpected. They arise out of nowhere. They're unsettling. And lastly, our challenges are often revealing. Because in our challenges that we face, challenging circumstances often reveal that what we trust in turn out to be phony saviors offering fake promises in a false hope. Challenges reveal our false and phony saviors offering false, fake hope. So Israel in their day, they make an alliance with Egypt trying to say, hey, if we military power or we connect our military and political power with Egypt, we're going to have an alliance that's going to thrust the Assyrians back into Nineveh. Or if that doesn't work, we'll appeal to Syria and pay them a whole bunch of money. And if that doesn't work, we'll build up our defenses. We'll put our civil and military defense department at, to work to save us. They do all of those things and nothing works. The army still comes and starts knocking on the door. And don't we go up to false savers as well? A financial problem? I just need more money. A knowledge problem? More education. A relational problem? More counseling. An emotional problem? Well, more mindfulness. An exhaustion problem? Just more vacations. More time at the beach, right? An anxiety problem with more substances. Are any of these solutions bad? No. But they're all insufficient. Because what these phony saviors are doing are offering false promises. <clears throat> the Rav Shika does that in verse 16. Look back at verse 16. He says, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of, will eat of your own vine and each of your own fig tree, and each one of will drink the water of his own cistern. Which sounds a whole lot better than the promise he made in verse 12 to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine. Watch my language there. But this is what he's offering. You can have verse 12, you can have verse 16. Verse 16, hey, it looks really good. But what verse 16 is actually doing, it's mocking the true promise that God had made to his people way back. In the promised land, he told them they would sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree and drink from their own well. This is a messianic promise for the people of God that goes over and over and over again through the Old Testament. So the Rabshakeh is exciting the people with the same promise that God made. Your God hasn't delivered on his promise, but I will. Do you remember the Jungle Book? Like the old uh, animated Disney and the uh, Mowgli, the man-cub, wants to get... He wants to stay in the jungle, but Bagheera and Baloo want to take him back to the village where he belongs. And so Mowgli wants to stay in the jungle, so he meets the snake, Ka. And what does Ka promise? Oh, you can stay here, 
Trust in me. And the snake hypnotizes him. He offers a false promise. Mogul, you can stay here. But what does Ka want to do? He wants to eat him. Isn't this what happened to the people of Israel? Isn't this what happens to us? The Rabshakeh tips his hand in verse 17 and says, Yeah, you will have your own vine and fig tree and water for a little while, but then you're going to be coming back with us. And you're going to come and be exiled from your homeland and come to ours. And the Assyrians were not known for their hospitality. A false savior appears offering the good life, but in the end it consumes those who go after it. And it goes with us. As we commit ourselves to false saviors, whether that's possessions or substances or people or education or career or retirement or government or relaxation techniques, if we trust in these to deliver us from the anxiety, the angst, the physical and spiritual turmoil, we will all be sorely disappointed because they will all let us down. They may work in the short term, but in the long term they will fail us because it's a false hope because they are phony saviors. So the choice is before us. Which savior will you trust to deliver you today? And remember, this is written for our instruction. <clears throat> and so Hezekiah and the people make the right choice, and they show us what to do. So they will show us that hope grows in the soil of faith. Let's see their response. We're going to pick up the narrative in chapter 36, verse 21. <clears throat> but they, that's the people of Jerusalem, were silent and answered him, the Rabshakeh, not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshika. <clears throat> as soon as Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest covered with sackcloth. They sent him to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to Isaiah, Thus says Hezekiah, This is a day of distress, of rebuke, of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. And so we see here, the leaders of Israel make the right response. They humble themselves. They put on sackcloth. There's deep and lasting grief, repentance, and mourning. And then they go to Isaiah, the prophet of God, and ask him to pray. And so we don't have time to unpack this. So what we're going to do is we're going to pick up this point next week and look at the prayer of hope when we dive back into this chapter. But from, for now, we have to understand that Hezekiah and the people, they understand their situation that they have no strength in themselves. They feel their inadequacy. They know they can't surrender and go to Assyria because they're the people of God. They know their response is humble contrition. So they posture themselves in a position of humility. They trust in God, and we know that because they go to him in prayer. They ask Isaiah to pray. In the next chapter, Hezekiah will pray a couple times. So in faith, they desperately seek after God and hope begins to grow and flourish as their roots go deep into three different aspects of God's character. So how does hope grow in the soil of faith? Let's look at three aspects here. First, faith grows in God's providence. 
So Hezekiah is teaching us to trust in God's providence. Because what we're seeing, the Assyrians thought they were the ones who controlled their own destiny. They held all the nations in the palms of their hands. The Assyrians were the ones who were sovereign over the known world. The earth was theirs and the fullness thereof. And so we can see that the battle is not just between Assyria and Judah. It's between Assyria and the God of Judah. It's a battle for sovereign and divine control. And every challenge that we face is the same thing. Everything is coming and says, no, 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 I'm God. He's not, I am. Worship this, or follow me, or do this. Assyria has elevated itself to the height of arrogance, proclaiming it and its king were unstoppable. We see this in chapter 37, verse 24. So if you're reading along, go to chapter 7, verse 24. It says, by your messengers, you have ridiculed the Lord. So this is the Lord talking to Assyria. By your messengers, Assyria, you have ridiculed the Lord and you have said, and watch the pronouns here, with my many chariots, I have ascended to the heights of the mountains, the utmost heights of Lebanon. I have cut down its tallest cedars, the choices of its junipers. I have reached its remote heights, the finest of its forests. I have dug wells in foreign lands and drunk the water there. With the soles of my feet, I have dried up the streams of Egypt. Look at the boasting of Assyria. And what's interesting is those two verses are almost word for word what the king of Assyria wrote a hundred years before this. The kings of Assyria would have palaces and walls decorated with all of their exploits and I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. I took over this nation. I took over that nation. I slaughtered this people. I uh, subdued this nation. But there is one who takes issue with this and that's the Lord, Yahweh. Assyria has not picked a fight with a scrawny kid on the playground. He's provoked the Lord of the universe. So look how God responds in verse 26. Again, pay attention to pronouns here. This is God talking. <clears throat> Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass that you should make fortified cities crash into a heap of ruins while their inhabitants, sworn of strength, are dismayed and confounded? And have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass in the housetops blighted before it is grown. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Who's in charge? I love God says, oh yeah, you thought you did all that? No, you were only the axe. You were only the tool. You were only a shovel in my hand. You were doing my work, but you boasted in yourself. Because remember what the Rabshakeh said in chapter 36, verse 20? He says this, Well, who among the gods of these lands had delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? He's asking the question, Look, we've conquered all these other people. All their gods are nothing. We're the most powerful creatures on the planet. We've done this in all of our strength. Who is this puny little God of Judah? We'd take him too. What they don't reckon is that all the gods that they conquered weren't gods at all. That's the whole point of Isaiah's prophecy here. The one that they mock now, well, he's the real deal. Assyria thought it was in control. It's working for its own glory, its own fame, but it missed the memo that they're only a tool in God's hand. Their conquest of the world, their strength, their terror, their work is used by God for his purposes. 
And I love how he ironically puts it again in verse 10. He says, Moreover, is it without me that the Lord has... that? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up to destroy this land? The Lord said to me, Go and destroy this land. Well, of course the Lord told him, because the Lord is in control of everything. Nothing is outside of his plan, his purposes, his providence. Nothing is outside of God's control. There's never a point where he says, Whoops, I didn't see that coming. He never has to react to a plan. He has, never has to go to option B, C, or D. There's never no second guessing. Assyria doesn't mass its strength and power over the hillside somewhere that God's surprised when they come up. Hezekiah's sickness doesn't grow in the darkness of his body without God's notice, without God's hand. It's the same thing today, whether it's on a grand public scale, like a pandemic, or inflation, or shortages, or mass shootings, or riots, or wars, or if it's something on the intimate personal level like cancer, or job loss, or some family issue, or depression, or death. God knows the end from the beginning. Nothing takes him by surprise because he declares the end from the beginning. And he's providentially working in charge of everything, the good and the bad that comes our way. And so we must trust in this providence and not in some fatalistic way. Well, God's going to do what God's going to do. So, oh well, we can't get in his way. But with humility and contrite heart, we submit ourselves to God's providence because we understand that he knows what is best and righteous. His providence serves to bring him all the glory through the judgment of his enemies and the salvation of all people. God is using Assyria to judge his people for their sin. He will use the people of Assyria to work his purpose and his power to refine the people of God. And God will use strategies and suffering and challenges to do the same for us. He'll humble us, making us realize we're not God. He will refine us, to purify us. And in the end, he will use these things to create in us great dependence upon him. I love the story of John Patton, who was a missionary to the New Hebrides in the South Pacific. And he faced intense persecution. And we'll re revisit Patton's story next week, but listen to this quote. He says, as he's being attacked by these islanders. He thinks he's going to be killed. Day after day, he's under pressure, under torment, under threat of life. He says, My heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work was done with me. The assurance came with me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held, vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow, or killing stone the fingers, without the permission of Jesus Christ, who is all power in heaven and on earth. He rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savage of the South Seas. So Patton and Hezekiah understand this, that we are immortal until God is done with us, and nothing happens without the permission of Jesus Christ. Trust in God's providence. Nothing's outside of his control. Nothing takes him by surprise. Everything is planned and purposes from the beginning. And everything is for his glory and our good. And our hope is rooted and planted in the soil of God's providential care and benevolence. Even in the challenging times. So we trust in God's providence. Second, we trust in God's proclamation. 
We trust in God's proclamation because this is not a God who controls everything at a distance. He's not sitting in the air traffic control tower, sitting kind of watching, moving all these knobs and pushing all these buttons. He's intimately involved in his creation and especially with his people. We know this because in, in Isaiah and the rest of the Bible, God speaks. If you notice this, this is a war of words. The Rav Sheikh says, do you think mere words are strategy and power for war? And he keeps on talking. He says, hey, don't trust in the words of Hezekiah. Don't trust in the words of your God. They can't hear you. They can't save you. Hey, but you can trust what I am saying. The leaders in Jerusalem, they don't speak back to the Rav Sheikah. They go speak to God. It's a war of words. So what happens? Let's see God respond here. Uh, Isaiah chapter 37, verse 5 through 7. So 37, 5 through 7 says this, When the servants of Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put in him, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Then skip down to verse 33, same chapter. <clears throat> Chapter 37, verse 33. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Throughout the book of Isaiah, especially here over and over again, we see the Lord speaking directly to his people and declaring what is going to happen. He's the one telling the people what's going to happen before it even happens. And he says to them, is good and is right and is true and it can be trusted. So when the Assyrians ridicule words as being a strategy for war, they discount the one who's speaking these words. It's not a three-year-old whose limited vocabulary and logic isn't developed. He's not disputing with some college sophomore on the debate stage. It's not a politician making empty promises. This is the one who spoke the universe into the existence with a word. The one who spoke life and causes the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the lame to walk, and the dead to rise again with a word. I don't think the Assyrians knew who they were picking a fight with. He didn't realize what were fighting words. But what's ironic about this is God defeats them with a word. Go back to Isaiah chapter 37, verse 7. We'll pick that up again. It says, Behold, I, the Lord, will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The Rabshika returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king had heard concerning Tirak, king of Cush. He has set out to fight against you. So the Rabshika and the king of Assyria are starting to hear these rumors of movements of troops in this area and Turmoil in this area, God uses a word to dispel the Assyrian threat. And they hear this rumor, and the army leaves Jerusalem. God saves his people. When God says, the Assyrians won't prevail here, I'll give them a word, and they'll disappear. And we often skim over that phrase, don't we? Thus says the Lord, declares the Lord. But in that phrase is power, because of the one who speaks them. Isaiah makes it a major point of his prophecy that God is the one who actually talks 
All the other gods, all the other idols, all the other saviors are mute and silent. There's no idol, I-D-E-L-E, words with God. They have force and power behind them. The Lord is providentially at work and he speaks and there we have hope in what he tells us. So the Lord is providentially working to provide all things for his good, or for our good and his glory as he speaks a word of hope to them. So we trust in God's providence, we trust in God's proclamation, and finally, we trust in God's provision. Yes, God speaks, but how does he back up that word? What happens? What's the rest of the story? So Isaiah chapter 37, verse 36. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Can we just stop there for a minute? 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians? I've been in a crowd of 100,000 people at Neyland Stadium. Double that almost. God kills 185,000? Well, that can't be true. It can be true if you realize that the Assyrian army often marched with more than a million men. And overnight, God wipes them out with a word. Picking up. And then when the people arose early in the morning, behold, there were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and returned home to live at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, Adramelech and Shalazar, his son, struck him down with a sword. And after they escaped to the land of Ararat, Ershadon, his son, reigned in this place. Well, needless to say that this story didn't make it into the halls of Assyrian kings. They didn't broadcast their defeats. But God does. And it's just, this is so matter-of-fact it is. And the angel of the Lord went and struck down 185,000 men. And then the king slunk off back home after a rumor, and he was killed as well. God provides for his people. He takes the Assyrian king and the threats away from Jerusalem. He provides salvation for his people. But what happens to Hezekiah? Wasn't he sick? Well, look in chapter 38, verse 4 and 6. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, there's that phrase again, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend the city. So God saves the king, gives him more life. He saves the people of Israel. He does away with a threat. God continues to work on the behalf of his people for their good and his glory. Because there's nothing that the people of God did but pray to God to save themselves. So no human bow or sword or medical skill. God saves his people through his own power. This is the same provision that we trust today. Because God's salvation is not coming to destroy the people out there. I don't think there's any, any army knocking at our door right now. But God's salvation is bigger than this story. Because what God is doing here to save the people of Israel, to save the line of Hezekiah, he's writing a bigger story because he saves them here in 701 because he will bring a Savior 700 years later in the person of Jesus. God is restoring and reviving and preserving the line of the Messiah in our story. Because the salvation of Judah wasn't finalized. They will be exiled. They will be destroyed 100 years later. And they will need a new Savior. And this is where Christ comes in. 
This is what Isaiah is pointing to in all of his prophecies here. He says, There will be one who will be the true and righteous Israel. There will be one who will be exiled on our behalf. There will be one who will carry our burdens, our sorrows, our sicknesses, and our griefs. There will be one who will come to embody the word of God, who will manifest the word, who will speak the word. Christ will be the one to destroy the works of the evil one. Christ will come to save sinners pinned up by sin and by Satan who are dead in their sins, who are desperately sick and will die. This is a God who saves people still. So God saving his people in this story in Isaiah and 2 Kings is a preview of how God will save his people through Christ. God is one who saves his people not because of what they do, not because of their goodness or their righteousness, but for his glory alone. So our hope is in God's providence. God is working things out from the beginning to the end. He proclaims these things. He teaches us these things. His word gives hope. And he offers provision. What he has spoken and acted through Jesus' death and resurrection allows our hope to flourish. So our hope goes deep through faith into God's provision, his proclamation, and his providence. So our hope should not be diminished by the challenges of this life. We will face things. We will endure things. We can live because he has fought the greatest battle of them all. Through his death on the cross and his resurrection, he's defeated sin, Satan, and the grave. And our hope, when challenged and assaulted from fears within and frights without, can grow and flourish as we plant ourselves through godly faith. Like a tree that weathers the worst hurricanes because its roots go deep, we survive and we thrive through in through hardship and struggle and challenges in this life because our hope's not in our strength. It's not in a false and phony Savior. It is in God and Christ alone. So as we come to the Old Testament, it's often very confusing. Stories appear at random. People and places are foreign. They don't make sense. Prophecy and poetry are hard to decipher. But the message of the Old Testament to Isaiah and the people and to us is clear. God saves In particular, God saves sinners and gives us hope because he's the one who controls all things. He's the God who is there and he's not silent. He speaks and proclaims truth through his written word today. And he provides salvation to those who are humble, contrite, and those who seek after him. And ultimately, he provides Christ at the right time in the right way to save his people. This is a God worth trusting in. He's given us the greatest gift in his son. How will he not give us all things? So how do we cultivate this hope in challenging circumstances? We plant ourselves by faith in the goodness and greatness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Did we not emphasize that during our songs? That God is great. God is good. So we know, we trust, depend on him to deliver us from all challenges, all hardships, and even from death itself. We forsake the empty promises of those false saviors. We have no sustenance in this world. We posture ourselves in humility and wait for God to deliver us. And we will see our hope flourish as we plant ourselves by faith in his sovereign will, his sanctifying word, and his saving work. Hope in him. Let's pray.